It's a very tenuous time in the workforce. COVID certainly has been an accelerator of where we are today. I think we're a decade ahead of where we would have been if not but for. And the concern on the table today revolves around the sobering reality of irrelevance of a certain percentage of the workforce. Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Hawk, Vice President of Talent Marketing at Neo Partners. Today, we will talk with Joe Mullings, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Mullings Group, the world's leading search firm in the medical device industry, as well as the founder of a number of other organizations, including a production company and a startup incubator. We will talk about Joe's ideas about how the future of technology is already impacting the future of work and the future of search. Joe, it is such a pleasure to finally welcome you on State of Independence. You know, you were one of the first individuals that I actually talked with last year about the concept of State of Independence, and it has just taken us uh, between now and then to finally get to sit down and have a chat about your very intriguing and I think exciting and contrarian views about the future of work. So before I move into our questions, I would love to just have our audience, and these are typically members of the MBO Partners Network, both client and independent contractor, as well as all those that follow our thought leadership on the future of work, really understand who you are and then where you were 10 years ago today. I founded the Mullings Group executive search firm back in January 1992, got into search in 1989. I've been responsible for more than 7,000 successful searches in the health tech, med tech industry with everybody from Google, Johnson & Johnson, Siemens, down to early stage emerging tech startups that have just a CEO and are looking to build their organizations uh, into the nearly $600 billion a year health tech, med tech industry. But you actually hold a couple of other really interesting roles that I think might inform our audience as to why you have the perspective that you do. I'd love for you to share a little bit about them started my own firm in January 92, but I've been super fortunate to work in one of the most amazing industries, I believe, in the world, and it's the health tech, med tech industry. So they're the most brilliant thinkers, um, but they're the most passionate because nearly every single one of them, especially the engineers, could have gone to another industry and probably made 20% more money. But they chose to create a product or a platform that would probably save their grandmother one day rather than trying to keep somebody in a browser for another 43 seconds. And so th this passion of solving some amazing problems that are healing the human race. And through that time, we've developed such a level of competency in our firm that I got to sit in boardrooms, that I got to sit with some of the greatest thinkers. I think the biggest explosive part of my career was the four years I spent at Google working closely with them and J&J &J on developing a robot and seeing the lateral thinking that went on there and understood how they viewed product development, project management, and building an organization. And then since then, it's become a flywheel. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to coach, been fortunate enough to sit and listen to some of the greatest inventors. And again, I'm always an engineer. So I never 
take the answer for the data point. I look for the reason for the answer. For somebody with your kind of experience, you must have seen search transform as, as an industry very dramatically. And one of the things I would love to hear from you about that transformation of search is the addition of the non-traditional or independent professional, as you know, that's a topic that we'll be speaking about today, and how and in what way that's influenced the progression of search with you, based on your expertise. Yeah, so in essence, the, the world of work has changed quite a bit uh, in the last, well, certainly in the last year, and, and I know that's a subject many are covering. But the world of work has changed quite a bit as it goes from a full-time employee to, uh, I would say, a contractor interim type role. And <clears throat> I, do, I do differentiate contractor from gig sort of worker as well. The gig worker is more of trying to get an additional revenue stream coming into their life and, and doing that through, uh, I would say, certainly honorable and important jobs in our ecosystem from an Uber driver to delivery service or uh, a side hustle maybe, where the contractor over the last, I would say the last three or four years especially, has emerged as a force to be reckoned with in the industry. And it used to be that contractors in the search world were a fancy word for unemployed, when in fact now they've become a critical part of the ecosystem and I would attribute a good part of it due to the acceleration of technology and specialization skills in very specific verticals and industries. We absolutely see that inside MBO. Our business, as you know, has two sides. One side is talented, typically high-end independent talent. So very similar to the contractor population that you describe, concentrate in certain key verticals for our industry or for our company that typically looks like professional services, healthcare, financial services, technology. These are sort of the hottest and then the federal space are some of the key verticals we play in. And what we hear from our clients that really are on what we think of as a workforce transformation journey. So they're looking at what is the work, what needs to happen, what's the outcome or output, and then what is the best way for me to get from my work need to an excellent result. And I think many of them, as they've gone through looking at work that way, instead of as a just a fundamentally traditional employment model, have immediately said, okay, this is the group we need to tap, right? The smartest fintech expert, the smartest SAP developer, the very best artificial intelligence expert, and we're willing to pay in a fractionalized way for the skills that we can get from them to get the job done. So I certainly see echoes of what you're seeing in search in just the everyday application inside our ecosystem of workforce transformation. And, th and there's a number of reasons for that. W one is we've got a convergence of technologies taking place right now. You know, I think out of our economy, almost 80% of the GDP uh, is directed towards service-oriented revenue as, as you look at GDP. And it doesn't mean we've stopped making things, but we now are making things like refrigerators and automobiles that have a service product platform associated with them, whether it's subscription radio station, uh, whether it is, uh, in fact, an ongoing warranty on a digitally empowered product, 
whether it is a SaaS type product embedded in a product. Uh, and again, you can look at an iPhone. So we manufacture an iPhone, um, but you've got an ongoing battery of services in, in, in the form of apps coming on there. And so that's an example of, you could look at Apple makes the, the phone, but the number of subcategories and services that live and reside within that are being developed by outside partners, contractors that join the Apple workforce, if you will. And certainly that is reflective across the board because of this convergence of technology. There's no way for one organization to possibly, or very few organizations, to possibly have the ability to have all those workers on demand as needed to provide an elite best-in-class skill set at the exact moment in time that you need to converge on getting that done. And as long as it's not a core competency, it sometimes is best to outsource it or co-source it with contractors or a consulting firm. What you speak about, and by the way, an extremely compelling and I think very accurate picture that you paint for our audience that is trying to understand, uh, you know, what is it that we produce as a nation and uh, what are we going to produce in the future? Because by the way, transformation is still happening in real time. And so the numbers that we see today, you know, sort of the 80-20 rule that you described, it may continue to transform. Just using the Apple example, what came to my mind is that it is essentially non-core to manufacture that device on short. They may, but they actually may not, right? That device could be manufactured, the physical device or the manufacturing 20% uh, becomes um, very much less relevant. And what becomes more relevant is how do you deploy the US or the global high talent workforce to work on that other 80% and in fact, grow the pie, right? Because it's, it's, it's not just the 80-20, it's what's the total pie? Is it 80 and 20 of 100 million or is it 80-20 of 100 billion? Because you've created a massive market that in fact lifts everybody, including the manufacturer, wherever they might be, because now they're manufacturing something for a much bigger population, but also the number of people and entities traditional and non-traditional that are part of the ecosystem. And to me, that's that's an exciting and actually a very optimistic way to look at the future of work. And I think in our population today and with the disruption of COVID, there's a lot of people that are very afraid, right? So they're not seeing that opportunity, let's call that shareholder capitalism, the ability to participate. They're seeing what is going to happen to how I conduct work and then how I participate? What are your thoughts on that? Or your, as a search expert, what do you say to talent that you speak with? I want to tag on to the back end there. When you make something, and if we look at the fabrication of a product, that is less easy to scale than a service or a software. And oftentimes, software is a product of service. And so while you have tangible products that you can manufacture, you can turn out a much greater scale, therefore profitability, therefore free markets and investment indexed towards those types of service-oriented, SaaS-oriented products that may reside on the delivery system. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to Apple, the delivery system is the phone, which is critical to that ecosystem. However, the profits and the scalability and ongoing subscription model 
takes place in the software and the service end of things. And that's why you're seeing that explosion is you just need to look at free markets. And if I can invest a dollar in a product that requires physical one to two to four to 16 to, to you know, 164, if I want to start to compound that growth, it's a lot easier for me to do on software. So that's one. Going back to your question about the workforce. It's a very tenuous time in the workforce. COVID certainly has been an accelerator of where we are today. I think we're a decade ahead of where we would have been if not but for. And the, the concern on the table today revolves around the sobering reality of irrelevance of a certain percentage of the workforce. So let me unpack that for you. The rate of acceleration of technology right now is a hockey stick. And we're living in a time where, as I mentioned earlier, and that's why I mentioned it, is we're not just manufacturing things. We're providing service on a subscription model that revolves around software, hardware, firmware. A relatively new concept when you index it against the time spent over the last 500 years, 700 years manufacturing something. So really, that acceleration has taken place over the last 15 to 20 years max. So it's a very brief moment in time. With that is the workforce training. The workforce training has remained relatively flat. Even though very few are digital natives, very few have been educated for the way the economy is moving right now in regards to hardware, software, firmware. The upskilling of the workforce is non-existent for the most part. There are some organizations that are doing a reasonable job at it, but we're moving into a technology first, software, hardware, firmware services, world. We've got a workforce that has primarily been trained to make stuff or serve stuff. And now we've got this divergence taking place. And I'm very concerned that we don't have a solution in place for the people that are either going to be working in jobs that are not going to be, so let's call it underemployed for lack of a better term. And then there's not a reskilling mindset in the United States uh, where we have, for the most part, decided after the age of 22 or 18, you no longer need to learn. And so what is going to happen is there's going to be a rapid rate of irrelevance in the workforce, which is going to open up the opportunity for those that have specialty skill sets that are appropriate and mm -hmm. highly valued in the emerging markets. I couldn't agree more, you know, and I've lived and worked in different parts of the world. And so I've seen firsthand the reality that talent, brilliant talent is everywhere. And especially by the way, younger populations, so, you know, age plays or demography plays a role. We're in a certain demographic stage in the West and certainly in the US. It looks very different if you go to the emerging markets in Asia. I grew up in Hong Kong. I've spent time in South Asia in my high school years. And so I've seen it, right, that they'll use the power of the internet to acquire information, to self-educate. I mean, look at the, look at Khan Academy as a simple example of how you can democratize education around complex concepts. And they'll invest in education 
to achieve certifications and skills. I always point to the idea that Google for the first time has said that they won't recruit based on college degrees anymore, but they'll recruit based on technical certifications as evidence that the technology sector in the US has sort of recognized this and has understood that you can have people learn and become skilled at something and demonstrate their skill using technology and then become valuable contributors. I echo everything that you say, and and in fact, it's been discussed on the State of Independence podcast by more than one guest, this concept of us needing to have education for the mid-career worker that enables them to move into new fields at a much more rapid rate. Arun of um, NYU talked about this. He's very passionate about dealing with that portion of the population that is becoming displaced, what you call the underemployed. Many of them, in fact, are experimenting with platforms like gig-based work in order to find new avenues to work. So they're out there hustling, trying to figure this out. But um, we do need society and private organizations alike to step in and help to create part of the solution. I think the thing that I kind of question, and I'm asking this as sort of an honest question, is it goes back to what you said about manufacturing and services. Do we manufacture it as companies? Meaning, do we decide we're going to create a solution inside our organizations and then sort of sell it to our stakeholders? Or do we put the problem out into the market and say, how can an individual sort of pivoting the responsibility from the manufacturer of work, which is the company with work to get done, to the suppliers of work? And what do you need to do to be competitive for the work that is being manufactured in terms of demand, right? We talk about that all the time inside MBO as a platform-based business model. What are your thoughts there? So that's a, that's a really interesting question, and it, and, it, and it could go down a number of avenues. So the first one is it, it could be an and, and it's not an or. And you already have organizations like uh, Sprint, who has an enormous amount of money reinvested back into its organization. Rather than look for new workers, it offers you the opportunity to upskill and learn within their internal university. Because if you have best athlete, and you already know that somebody is a great member of your team, why would you not reinvest back in them for retention reasons? You already know the person and how they're going to work and how they're going to put the initiative forward. You've got organizations like Google now. You had pointed out, uh, you know, Google now has the ability to go online and get certain certifications that would be valuable for an application at Google. Now, interestingly enough, Google actually has more contractors than they have full-time employees in their organization. Interesting stat. Uh, And then I I do believe that the current state of the four-year degree in the United States, at least in the United States, other than the top-tier universities, uh, the brand names, if you will, are incredibly at risk because education is incredibly important no matter what you're pursuing, whether it's the humanities, whether it's uh, electrical engineering, whether it's uh, med school, what have you. But the cost of a four-year degree today the shelf life of value on that four-year degree and, and mapping, again, I'm, I'm not undervaluing the value of an education and clear and critical thinking. I'm just wondering if we are interviewing and putting job postings out for the ability to discuss the classics. Mm-hmm. Incredibly important for thinking. Having said that, I don't recall in my 
entire 30 plus years in search of a job requirement, being able to discuss in an animated way, Moby Dick. Okay. But I certainly have seen C, C++ embedded real-time systems. I have certainly seen, you know, the ability to perform differential equations on a time motion study. So people are being charged on average, I think it's $30,000 a year for a four-year degree. And by the time they get out, they're crippled in debt. They usually have to take the first job in order to start paying down that debt. It's a product that's already outlived its shelf life because of the rate of acceleration of technology in the marketplace. And you are buying a product that is critically losing value from the moment you start. And the debt that you're going into cannot be shooken off even in claiming bankruptcy. And I think that's going to be a major issue for the emerging students, especially in a suppressed employment environment that's going to be happening for the next 24 to 36 months. From the point of view of that individual, of course, those that are coming out of school right now or going in, part of they're partially already locked into this, this deal, right, that they've signed. But there's things that they might be able to do. And there's things that those that are advising them might be able to do to optimize their chances of success. And I want to switch us to something that I know has been a, a hallmark of your brand, I guess, in the employment space. I found it very intriguing when we first chatted, you know, this idea of having a very maverick or contrarian view, like, you know, we joked are you like the Anthony Bourdain of the job search industry? Because you're very direct and you're very straightforward about speaking to the talent and saying, look, here's what you want it to be, but here's what it is. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, comparison, Anthony Bourdain. Um, certainly uh, uh, somebody I held in high regard for what he uh, did and what he represented and, and how he did it. Interestingly enough, I started a media company and we are a full production company, media company, the largest in the med tech industry. We've got our own docu-series, True Future. So I've traveled around the world, a la Bourdain. Instead of talking about food, we visited people, places, cultures uh, around the world and told their stories, the entrepreneur stories. Uh, so I've been really blessed to be put in a position to listen to great thinkers and critical thinkers and really listen uh, to understand how did they arrive in their observations? So for the students that might be listening to this, we have a, a community of crowdsourcing experts, many of whom are at universities under the brand MindSumo that was recently acquired by MBO. And I'm thinking of them right now as I'm, as I'm hearing you speak. What do you say to them about getting ready? Yeah, let, let's look at most college grads. And, and look, I'm 59 yesterday, so I can even think back about what I went to college for. Generally, we're influenced to go to college for the most part by a guidance counselor in high school that sat in the back office that was usually giving you advice after you took a test for 45 minutes on whether you should be a doctor, a garbage man, or a race car driver based upon some faceless data-driven evaluation. And then they gave you that guidance and, and that person, by the way, whoever in their life wanted to be a guidance counselor. So there's a person whose career was by happenstance. And again, no disrespect to a guidance counselor. So it was either that or it was your mom and dad or whoever raised you around your dinner table who oftentimes would overlay their hopes and dreams on you. 
And if you wanted to be an artist, they would tell you that you're going to be a starving artist, you should become an accountant. Or they wanted you to aspire to go after a major in school, so they went to a cocktail party and can claim that you went to Duke for finance or international finance because it was important to them. Yet you, at 19, are making a life decision based upon input from influential people in your life, may or may not have merit. And if you really unwind them today as an adult, we all look back. While we love our parents, they really didn't know what the heck they were talking about most of the time in regards to careers, let alone extrapolating that out 10 or 15 years from when it's really going to matter. So I'm, I'm just building a case here is we make decisions at 18, 19 years old where we don't even know who we are yet. And then we invest all this money in university, if you go to university, and then we're tied to that for the next 45 years because of a die that was cast, usually influenced by somebody else. And then you just said, gosh, I just spent 130000 I might as well continue to pursue this career. And then if it doesn't resonate with you, you've got this internal dissonance in you that will lead to affecting your relationships at scale across your life because you're not actually doing what the universe whispered in your ear at 18, 19, or 20, but you were influenced by somebody else. And now you're living with that, and now you're going to work in a place that maybe, if you're lucky, and maybe the one to 2% actually made the right decision in the right career at the right moment in time, and then take that out 40 years, the odds that you're still right, to me, it's an insane equation. So to the recent grads, if you went to university and you loved what you did at university, decide if it was the subject or career or how it made you think. Because I went to school for engineering, a fine school, University of Dayton, Ohio, got out in 1984. I punted in 1987 out of engineering because there was no way I was going to sit in the same room with the guys who were with flannel shirts, who were capped at how much money they could make, and also also really couldn't live out loud on what they wanted to do. And so do not be held hostage to what your guidance counselor told you and what your mom and dad told you and what romantically somewhere somebody thought was good for you if you know it's not right. Because by the time you're 30, you've got another 50 years of life because you're not going to retire at 65. You've got another 50 years of life. Why the heck would you show up every day? You're still a kid. You're still super young. I switched careers at 27, 28. I created another career at 50. And there's all kinds of people who have done things like that. So my guidance to you is if you're not in love with what you're doing today, I'm not saying go in and quit tomorrow. I'm saying get a plan together. Get a five-year plan together. Start mapping towards what you want to be. Do you want to be a comic book artist? You can figure out a way with the internet today at scale to do that. Do you want to be a musician? Yeah, you can make your own music online. There's no middleman anymore. You can do that. Do you want to be a surgeon, but you went to school to be an electrical engineer? You can do it all, but do not be held hostage based upon what your mom, dad, guidance counselor, and even the money you blew in college in order to design the rest of your life. What you say is something that we hear at a different stage within our community. So the average sort of 10-year age of successful independent professional sort of that 100K plus population, sort of living the dream of a successful independent life, about 7.7 million individuals fall into that category according to the 2020 State of Independence Report. They have some characteristics that align very closely to what you describe as discovering your purpose and your passion 
and then designing a life around that, right? So some things that we see from that population, despite the challenges of being self-employed, which by the way, is very challenging, things like figuring out healthcare and, and predictable income, not easy things. Individuals in this group are considered to be satisfied, happy, and continuing at a rate of about 80%, despite the challenges. So that tells you something about what somebody in mid-career needs to not feel that melancholy or that disconnection that you describe that occurs in many careers. It comes with certain things that we have seen from the data. And again, so this is more quantitative than qualitative. Independent workers are happy, satisfied, and continuing, but why? They seek flexibility, the ability to do the work they love the way they want, and they want control over their career. So they're very oriented toward flexibility, control, and specific types of work. So as somebody who isn't even just starting out, but who's somebody who's, let's say, in their, as you said, their 30s or their 40s even, and they're seeing that next 30-year tranche start, you're mid-career, you've got some logos under your belt, you've got some traditional skills. How do you navigate that? And what role could a, could a recruiter or a professional search expert play in your journey at that point? So you brought up the word self-employed and you used the word challenge, and then you used the word fulfilled. And those things go together for a few reasons. We are the happiest people and the most fulfilled people when we have a challenge in front of us when we choose to take on the heaviest burden we can take on and we, we load that burden on our shoulders and it drives us forward more than the paycheck. And you know, when people say, find something you love and pursue that, there's, there's a little truth to that, but not a lot. Because I'm not sure a lot of people would want to do their hobbies for the rest of their life. Right. But I think you have to unwind the word what you love because if you find something that you love to do, you'll be able to persevere through the challenges because you'll love it so much, the thousand times you want to quit, you'll never, ever quit. So I think being able to shoulder a burden is something incredibly critical that we underplay. You know, when you, when you don't have any worries in the world and you don't have any direction or you don't have any, and I don't want to use the word mission, but you don't have something that you have chose to carry the burden for to get over the line, I think you end up without direction. And so when you take the words flex, work, and control, I think the flexibility is, is, is the ability for you to solve the problems in the way that you see the world. Oftentimes when you're employed by somebody, they tell you to solve the problems the way that they want them to be solved. And that does not allow one to express themselves in their problem-solving skills. As a species, we love to solve problems. And we get rewarded handsomely if we solve problems, whether it's LeBron figuring out how to put the ball in the rim, he's solving a problem better than anybody and maybe more efficiently than anybody in the NBA today. And the same with creating products. So when we're put into an environment and it's a closed fenced in environment and somebody's buying your life from you, because that's really what work is. When you get a salary, somebody's determined how much your hour is worth and then you've decided to sacrifice that hour to solve the problem that they want it solved. And now you compound that downrange over days, weeks, months, and years. It's a very rare animal that comes out on the other end of that fulfilled. When I think back to your earlier analogy of 
the Apple phone versus the Apple ecosystem, why what you're saying is very important to enterprises and not just to individuals is that if you get people working and getting really engaged with the right big problems, meaning you trust them, you throw problems out into the world to solve. I I see this as very aligned also to the concept of open innovation. What you gain from that is by, by relinquishing some control over the employee and the how they go get things done, you actually unlock much greater shareholder value, right? Like the app store unlocks more value than the product, which is the, the thesis you had at the start of this conversation. I think this that that's a thesis organizations should be really thinking about, given neither they nor their talent really has any idea what next year holds, <laughs> let alone what, I mean, that's what COVID has shown us, right? Let alone what the next 20 years hold in terms of pivot, change, disruption, et cetera. When you throw an idea out into the ecosystem, so let's assume it's a free market, right? So this this holds true in free markets, especially. Uh, in closed markets and in, in, in communist and Marxist states, it doesn't hold true. When you have a free market, you've got a hierarchy of competency. And that's what free markets really thrive on, is the the best solution will make it to the top. And so, you know, this this also plays into the conversation around the contract world and the uh, interim world versus the full-time employee world. For the most part, organizations become ecosystems over time, but by design, they have to be. You have SOPs, you're taught how to think, you're taught how to fit into our culture. And at the same time, you're also compromising free thought. You're also compromising the hierarchy of competency because now your level of competency can only rise to the top within that organization. So when you bring in outsiders who are not constrained by that freedom of thought because they have been suffocated by the culture and the echo chamber, you get alternative solutions to challenges and problems, then you can toss back in and now that culture and that organization gets a sudden new perspective that they weren't able to declare previous to that outlier. Again, it's a hierarchy of competency brought in and now you can start to put that, look, this is why Apple acquires organizations. Everybody romantically thinks Apple develops everything in-house, they don't. All of that independent free thinking happens outside the organization and they acquire that technology a majority of the time. I mean, it's a series of brilliant acquisitions and then the Apple culture is overlaid on that. But the seed, the genesis of all these innovations, you know, the Gorilla Glass, all the Sapphire Glass, all of these things were born for the most part outside the organization and then polished and honed for an Apple type product inside. You know, I read, I was reading some content about you as I was preparing for this episode, just to build on the conversations that we'd already had. I always like to look and and see what the world has to say, right, about somebody. And I came across a really interesting little tip that I think in an article on Medium, where uh, you mentioned that Gary Vee was a huge influence on you. Talk about that, because I think that's really interesting, especially for those of us who are coaching business owners to build their brand. Yeah. So yeah, Gary was very influential in the early days as we developed our media company. I had the opportunity to be up at Vayner a few times and spend some time with Gary. 
I've always admired his ability to use social platforms at scale in the observation and predictability and influence of human behavior. I've always been fascinated with human behavior in itself, but Gary has done a really interesting job of creating attention and awareness uh, around a subject or a product um, or an organization. And um, I would say in the first year or two, uh, there was a lot of coaching there. There was a lot out of that organization that I extrapolated the physics of it, but then applied it to a different viewer base. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. So it's highly predictable on how we're going to move. There's only so many ways we can move. Absolutely. We deal with a community of very high-end, very experienced call them independent professionals, but I really see them as solopreneurs or micro business owners. So their skill is is sort of what they've acquired, but what they've decided to do is set up shop, right? Like they now have a storefront that sells their knowledge, their services, and oftentimes also products, meaning as their knowledge becomes deeper, they can consider productizing it. They can consider selling not just to large clients, sometimes even to each other. We see this happen inside our platform, this very rich nodes of interaction between talent. And one of the things I advise the group that I work most closely with, which is our community of membership-based professionals, it's called MBO Advantage. And it's a smaller um, by admission community and just a fascinating world to be involved in is they're good at what they do already. I mean, nobody needs to give them a certificate in what they do, right? We talked earlier about the upskilling and the certificate. They're past that. They're excellent. They have a network. They have um, professional contacts. They understand how to price. But they're still sometimes struggling to match to the next opportunity. And what we coach them to do is to work on their thought leadership, their personal brand, and their ability to connect in the digital world with their future customer that they maybe don't even know, but that could be their best future customer. By being their best and most authentic self, I, I think they could learn You know, from what you're saying about what you chose to do as you listen to sort of VaynerMedia and Gary's kind of insights and then crafted sort of a story for your own personal brand. What would you say to them in addition to what you've already shared? Is is there are there some nuggets just based on having built companies multiple times over? Yeah. So it's a really good question. And and you know, this is what's nice about this answer because it's simple yet complex. So you had mentioned the people that are part of this group and they're all subject matter experts. You made that pretty clear. And that subject matter expertise, for the most part, is deployed in an analog fashion, one-to-one, maybe one-to-many in a room, uh, maybe one-to, you know, a CC of 20 people on an email list. When you decide to use social platforms, and let's look at LinkedIn as one right now, because it really is an educational platform. It's not a job platform. It's an educational platform. And if you mistake it for anything less than that, you're blowing an opportunity. If you can take that subject matter expertise and then share, teach, educate, inspire people in the industry that you want to index or pivot towards, you could then take that subject matter expertise that you were only able to demonstrate in an analog fashion, one-to-one or one-to-a-few. You can then start to, in a very appropriate way, share that on a platform and now become a subject matter leader. And that subject matter leader is what happens when you go from one-to-one from one to a node of many, because you can scale that 
You know, I think I've got 100,000 eyes on sets of eyes on me a day. I could never touch that many people in an analog world every day. And then so when you take that SME behavior and then you move it digitally to subject matter leader, you start to elevate yourself to now maybe a group of five to six people in your industry. And then if you continue to refine those skills, you can potentially jump to voice where you can become the voice of your industry. And that comes with a lot of discipline. It comes with a lot of planning. It comes with adding a lot of value. And it only comes when you give, not when you advertise. And so that would be my guidance to the people who are already subject matter experts, who are, will spend the time to become a subject matter leader by teaching, inspiring, and building. And then stay in there long enough, refine your messaging, refine what your audience wants to hear. And by the way, social media means social as an interaction. You don't get the post walk away and expect people to keep coming back. So SME, SML, and ultimately your aspiration is to become the voice of your industry. I think that is a roadmap that we I could see actually taking some of the already emerging thought leaders within our community through. And I think it'll be wonderful to watch them grow on that journey because they all have the desire, but it's understanding the science. And then, as you said, having the commitment you know, building the commitment to show up and do something consistently, whether it's every day or every week or every month, that's a, a powerful human behavior that um, successful entrepreneurs in any field, I'm not speak, speaking specifically to, um, you know, consultants working via MBO, but I think this is true. I've been an entrepreneur multiple times over. That's what sets you apart. If you aren't able to show up every day and just try your chances are in the world that's as hyper-competitive as the world that we're in, it's going to be difficult to succeed. As we're closing out, I just wanted to thank you for giving us such a thoughtful macro view of what you said. You, know, you started with this concept of rapid technological change. You know, Miles, who is our CEO, he talks about the fractionalization of everything so many concepts around change that I think uh, ring true in, in how you've looked at looked at and designed your career and the companies you've built. But then equally important, and, and, and certainly so for our community, I think you've been very candid as somebody who's been inside the business of matching talent to work for some of the world's top companies. And you mentioned them, companies like Google and J&J, for what's needed you know, to make yourself competitive for that opportunity, that becoming the voice, being the SME, getting yourself out there with the right content. I mean, these are great, great pieces of advice for someone who could be transformational for an organization, but simply doesn't know how to walk in that door. And, you know, what we love about our work at MBO is we make it easier for a talent to be relevant to an organization and for an organization to be relevant to talent by taking away a lot of the friction and the barriers that exist even little things like how to be compliant, how to have the right insurance, how to get paid, the things that just get in the way of work getting done, we remove those and then we seek to elevate the talent and make them the best business owners that they can be so that they can make that connection better. Because we agree with you that just like the Googles of the world that are more extended than they are fixed in their workforce, we know and we see on the ground with the many Fortune 1000 organizations that we work with that that trend is not going to reverse. It's only going to accelerate, right? So what, we're, what we speak of is the extended or non-traditional workforce is going to be the workforce, right? Or the ecosystem or the platform that drives how things get done. So thank you again. 
such a pleasure to chat with you. Appreciate you having me on, and I uh, really, really enjoy your show. That was Joe Mullings, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Mullings Group. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.